Amen. If you have your Bibles, turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6, today we're going to be reading down verses 1 all the way down to verse 7, and we'll be there for a couple of weeks, and so we'll be reading this text a couple times, okay? This is what the Word of God says, beginning in verse 1. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings, and with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with the tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Let's pray one more time for the Lord's help. Heavenly Father, we come before you now in this monumental moment where your word is preached in the congregation of your people. We know, God, that there is a special blessing. The Spirit loves to minister through the word. And I pray today, O God, that you would use your word to speak to our hearts, to awaken us to the reality that Isaiah saw, the reality that changed everything for him. And we pray, O God, that you would strengthen us, give us a heart to bear beneath your word today. Give us a heart to shed the outer shell of superficiality, the surface level Christianity, as we gaze upon the God that nobody wants. I pray for your church today. Help us as we look upon your glory, the glory that you have chosen to reveal. And give us hearts, Lord, to understand what is your nature and what we have made of you and where we need to change so that we can be brought into greater conformity with your word. In Jesus' name, amen. I've been preaching for a long time now, 13 years, something like that. And uh, 
I honestly think I've gotten pretty proficient at it. And what I mean by that is that I remember there was a time where I would stack the room with commentaries, and I'd have to read every commentary, every footnote, <laughs> every footnote about the footnote, <laughs> so that I can feel uh, a sense of adequacy. In other words, so that I can feel prepared to preach God's Word. And truth be told, now entering into this, whatever, 13th year, whatever, doing this, uh, I could put a sermon together in one day. Uh, it's not a problem. Um, some of the guys kind of laugh at that because they, they're in the early stages of that and they wonder why I don't freak out when I have something hanging over me. But uh, the, the, it just comes with the time. It just comes with doing it over and over and over. And you develop a sort of a reservoir of biblical uh, theology where you just feel like, I know this. I know the material. I know where to go. I know what to do. And um, like I said, you kind of get to feel a sense of adequacy, uh, uh, self-sufficiency, as it were, a competency. But when I approach this text of Scripture, I tell you what, I, for the first time in a long time, I don't know if that's a bad confession, but for the first time in a long time, I really felt an overwhelming sense of total inadequacy. Just the things that are laid in front of us here are things almost too wonderful to even approach, let alone having to get into these things, having to peer into these things, having to dive into these things, having to drill down deeply into the, 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 the exegesis, the theology, the meaning of all these things. You're, you're just left struck. I mean, I was reading E.J. Young's commentary, his, which is like the standard for Isaiah, and I just thought, I can't even get out of this. So profound what's being given to us here in this vision. And so, needless to say, I've been uh, overwhelmed this week with a sense of not only inadequacy, but with a sense of the great duty that I have today to try to give some sort of estimation as to what is going on here in this book. This is, we've reached an Everest in Scripture. This is one of the pillars of the temple of the Word of God. And so I thought, okay, well, how am I going to do this? And I thought, okay, well, I better write my notes and try to stick to my manuscript <laughs> so that I don't go all over the place. <laughs> and so let's begin, brothers and sisters, as we peer into this. Today, we're going to go down to verse 4 in this passage. And it begins with a historical note that is very important for the context of Isaiah. It says, in the year... Of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord. Now, there's so much background here, but I don't want to get weighed down with the background. Uh, what makes this text so amazing is that it seems like the book's starting all over again, but we're in chapter 6, so what gives? Matter of fact, all the commentaries suggest, and they sort of debate back and forth, when was this written, this chapter 6? Because it seems as if it should have begun the entire book. It seems as if what uh, Isaiah is doing here is he's giving us the nature of his prophetic call, that is, his calling to be a prophet. And that, you thought, would begin the book, not kind of go in several chapters after the book has already begun. And so I think what's going on here is I side with the commentators that said, well, no, there's a theological purpose. And the theological purpose is this, chapters 1 through 5 sort of set the stage for this is the problem that Israel, that Judah is having 
They have, in the word, they have forgotten their God. They have become syncretistic. They have become lukewarm. They have become forgetful. They have lost their heavenly vision. And so what is needed is a vision that will suffice for the task at hand. What is chapter 6 about? Chapter 6 is all about preparing a prophet to go and prophesy. That is what chapter 6 is about. It's about Isaiah. And what will suffice for Isaiah to be ready to bring the word to Judah? Only a vision of this magnitude will prepare the prophet. Historically speaking, as we think about Uzziah, who he was, if you look at 2 Chronicles chapter 26, that's kind of the parallel to this, historically speaking. In 2 Chronicles chapter 26, Uzziah is a very important king in the history of Judah. Why? Because during his reign, Judah experienced unspeakable prosperity. There was safety, there was security, the economy was good, people were buying and selling, people had everything they needed, really. And so Isaiah was very famous, Isaiah was very prosperous. But there's a spiritual note here that needs to be pointed out. Isaiah, uh, excuse me, 2 Chronicles 26 verse 5 says, As long as he sought the Lord, God prospered him. And bound to Uzziah was the blessings of the nation. But if you know the story, as Uzziah begins to ascend in power, he became so strong that he became prideful in his heart. 2 Chronicles 26 verse 16. He was proud in his heart, and the NASB says, and he acted corruptly which most English translations, ESV, NIV, RSV, KJV, they say he grew proud and to his destruction. The difference between one Hebrew word there and one lexical variation. Either way, we get the point. His pride was his undoing. Now, if you take it as he acted corruptly, it makes sense because the pride of the king kind of reached an all-time high when Uzziah entered the temple and offered up blasphemous incense to the Lord, what he should not have done. And so isn't it ironic, isn't it ironic that as one king fades from the scene, the one who entered the temple and defiled it, here the prophet Isaiah himself is entering the temple. And so really what you could call this text is the tale of two temples. Uzziah symbolizes the temple being defiled. The vision of Isaiah gives us the temple as it really is. Holy, sacred, set apart. The focal point of the glory of God. It's the holy temple of God because of who dwells there. But there's another layer to all of this temple vision. Isaiah is not shown a vision of the temple that is on earth, I believe, what we could call the lower register, some of Meredith Klein's language, as much as he is in the temple in heaven, in a heavenly state, which is the upper register temple. We'll get into more of that. 
This whole chapter then is captured according to the temple vision. And so what we're given, brothers and sisters, in this chapter and then in the subsequent expositions that follow will be the features, the purpose, and the results of the vision of the temple. That's what it is. Today we'll look at the features. As the king passes from the scene, God will remind all of us that God's temple is holy still. The reason the temple is so holy is because the Holy One of Israel resides there. The Holy One of Israel is, according to some commentators, a phrase that possibly was coined by Isaiah himself. He uses it more than anyone else in the entire Old Testament and maybe even constructed it. For Isaiah, the death of Isaiah was as much a launching point of his own ministry to Judah and Israel as it was a signal to the nation of its spiritual climate. Uzziah's death marked the end of an age, as I said, the age of prosperity, safety, and security. And the king's death, hear this, the king's death would have left a lingering question in the consciousness of the nation. And the question is this, how will we prosper now? Where will our safety come from now? Who will secure the future of our posterity now? It was at this critical point, as the nation is losing its grip, that God speaks to His people from heaven and reminds them that He reigns on the throne. It's almost like the people are wondering, the great Isaiah has died. Who will reign in our midst now? And so, God gives the people this vision of glory and literally rips the doors off the hinges of heaven to awaken us, to awaken the prophet, to awaken the people who had forgotten that the only power, the only fame, the only glory that matters is God's. Because it says in 2 Chronicles that as Uzziah had been slaughtering his enemies in war, it says the, 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 the fame of his power grew. And so God wants to make a point here. <laughs> he wants to remind the nation of Psalm 33, verse 12. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. That's what they forgot. And so, what we see here, first of all, is not just the death of a king, but we also see the enthronement of the king of heaven. What does he say? He says, in the, in the year that King Uzziah, king Uzziah died, or in King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted. And Pastor Lynn asked me, what are you going to do, verse 1? I'm like, yeah, I probably should have just done verse 1. Because that's all you need right there. But in order to orient the people toward heaven, only a vision of highest conceivable exaltation and enthronement in the highest realm, the realm of glory, would suffice. As God seeks to order the people's lives toward Him who reigns in heaven, another critical element 
was needed, which was the metamorphosis, brothers and sisters, of the prophet. That's verses 5 through 7, and that's what we'll look at, Lord willing, next week. Isaiah was God's prophetic emissary. He was his spirit-endowed, spirit-filled ambassador who would bring the heavenly counsel to bear. Isaiah was to take on the heart of God if he was to communicate the heart of God. Talk about implications for pastoral ministry. Through this vision, Isaiah is transported in the Spirit into the upper register, that is, into the highest heavens, the presently veiled heavens, the heavens that are now beyond our perception in visionary form. As the, listen, this is very important. As the prophet is advanced into the glory realm, the vision reveals a reality more terrible and wonderful than Isaiah could have ever imagined. The God of Israel resides enthroned in the midst of endless hosts of heavenly beings, and his abode is a holy temple dwelling of cosmic proportions. It's bigger than Israel. The vision of the enthroned king of heaven is thus the revelation. It is the condescension of God who chooses to reveal himself to Isaiah with images of the lower register in order to remind them that these earthly realities, kingdom, temple, throne, robe, altar, smoke, all of these are but a correspondence, if it were, as it were. They're sort of replicas of a, heaven, of a heavenly reality. So ironic if you go to the Klein group, what we're talking about today. However, Israel through its sin has begun to sort of lose its correspondence to that heavenly ideal. They no longer fit the mold from which they were cast. They no longer were fulfilling their role as the nation the typological nation of the people of God and Isaiah's death, his irreverent incense on the altar in the temple was the last straw and the deformation of the nation. In order to bring the covenant people back into alignment, brothers and sisters, God has to reveal to them through the prophet his exaltation, his holiness, and his temple glory. First, those are my three points, by the way. First, God's royal exaltation. As one king is brought low, another one is exalted. God's exaltation is cast in the language of a royal court. Never forget it. A temple dwelling. A glory theophany. And God's glory is manifested in the context of angelic beings. Angelic hosts that fill the heaven realm with adoration, adulation, acclamation of the king of heaven. First, Isaiah's vision has the Lord Adonai, and that uh, Hebrew designation for the Lord at this point is very purposeful because Adonai, about, uh, above all the other titles and names of God, stresses his absolute sovereignty as king. Adonai is seated, seat, sit, seated on a throne, the seat of total sovereignty, and listen to this, what we can call 
sabbatical sovereignty. The Sabbath is first revealed as God's resting place at the close of creation, Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. The Sabbath, consequently, is the mode of rest, but it's also the mode of exaltation. Look at Psalm 132, verse 8 and 9, for example, because in the mode of rest, in the mode of exaltation, there we see God on His throne, His glory presence, and what it constitutes is the focal point of heaven. It is the center, the all-consuming center of heaven and the glory of God in heaven is God on a throne. I just did during the worship, don't get mad at me, Landon, I did a search on my Logos to see how many times in the book of Revelation the word throne appears. Yes, I was doing exegesis while you were seeing. Anyway, but it was your song that got me caught up to do that. <laughs> Dozens of times in Revelation. Throne, 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 throne. You got enough throne yet? No, you don't. Throne, throne, throne. I said dozens of times in Revelation. Over and over and over and over. Why? Because John is writing Revelation to comfort the martyrs who will themselves appear under the throne. And he comforts us this way, brothers and sisters, that he is a king, enthroned, reigning, supreme, all-powerful, all-sovereign. We need that. And if you're suffering under persecution, trust me, you need that. We comfortable Americans here in the West, at least thus far, we are quite alien to the concept of persecution. We get an ugly look at work or from a family member, we think we've been persecuted. But Psalm 132 says, Arise, O Lord, to your, watch this, to your resting place. And I made a lot out of this text because it's so important here to understand the nature of sabbatical rest. God's resting place is a throne it is, it is an enthronement. It is a symbol of reigning, ruling. Watch what it says here. You and the ark of your strength. And then it says, and let your priests be clothed with righteousness and let your godly ones sing to you. Isn't that amazing? The ark of your strength, in other words, is prophetic idiom of God's power to reign on his throne. And here Isaiah sees the Lord enthroned on the ark of his power to receive homage from the heavenly hosts. In the vision, God condescends to reveal himself in the context of royal majesty. He is the king, and as such, God gave the prophet to see in vision form, not the invisible ontic essence of God. No, because that would be a self-contradiction, something Scripture says that cannot happen. John 1.18, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 16. We cannot see the essence of the invisible God, but Isaiah sees God's revelation of himself in kingly form, maybe even in human form. That was Calvin's position, and also subsequently followed by E.J. Young. 
that what Isaiah sees there is a Christophany, sort of a visionary vision of the pre-incarnate and exalted Christ. He sees the consummate state of the glory of God. And therefore, who can blame them for making that connection? After all, God is revealed here in all manner of anthropomorphisms. He is seated on a throne. He is bedecked in royal vestments, and the seraphim surround him in a focal point of his throne. Focusing here on the seraphim, last time you studied that, only place in the whole Bible where the seraphim are mentioned is right here in this chapter. Mysterious creatures. The word seraphim comes from the Hebrew word that simply means to burn. Seraph. It's used that way in Amos chapter 2 verse 1. And what these seraphim do is they help us to understand something of the nature and of the character and of the attributes of God. In other words, they help to emphasize and to accent God's own holiness, His power, and His absolute sovereignty. Let's take those one by one. In terms of holiness, the seraphim are so ordained by God appointed to their task to attend the throne of God, that their designation accents the realm of glory and the Lord of glory as the Holy One. They are the burning ones, literally the way you would translate it. They are the burning ones. In other words, these seraphim are themselves aglow, ablaze with the holiness of God. And as Mater suggests in his commentary, the six wings of the seraphim probably were meant to make, to create sort of the illusion of a flame, a fire, in keeping with their name. Can you imagine it? Surrounding the throne, the the six-winged, flamed seraphim around the throne of God, sort of constructing, as it were, this great blaze burning all around the throne of God. Being so close to the divine glory, they were like embers near the consuming fire God of heaven. And their task was to radiate to God, back to God, His glory, His holiness. They bathed in His holiness and they radiated that holiness back to God. His own glory. Their ministry in the vision is to burn away the prophet's sin. Fitting him, suiting him for his mission as the emissary of the Holy Council of Heaven, by conforming the prophet to the realm of glory itself. We'll get more into this later, but I believe what's going on with Isaiah is much more than just he's being forgiven for his sin. I think he's being fashioned after the Imago Day. It's like a reenactment of creation in Isaiah. That means you've got to come back next week. In terms of his power, the verbs of action of the seraphim, what they do, all the verbs relating to what they do, whether they flew or whether they called out or whatever they did, all of it in the constant or continuous mode of the verb there, emphasizing their ever-moving ministry 
and the eternal and unending praise that they render to God. See, this movement by the heavenly hosts should not be conceived of, uh, by us in lines of what Catholic art has given us historically of angels. Namely, that angels are sort of pretty, elegant creatures that gracefully glance through the sky. That is not the right picture, I don't think. Ezekiel. You want to talk about somebody who saw crazy stuff. Ezekiel, chapter 1, verse 14. In his vision of the heavenly realm, he is given a picture of the heavenly hosts that is most reminiscent to the nature and characteristic of lightning. Is that what comes to your mind when you think of angels, seraphim, cherubim, angelic hosts? I did not understand the power of lightning until I moved to Texas. <laughs> I was caught in a storm once, and I was walking through the parking lot of a, a Target. A lightning bolt struck so close to me, first of all, I thought I was dead. I did not cry out to St. Anne, but <laughs> it was so terrifying and bright that I literally, ah! I couldn't even look at it. And Ezekiel is saying, the throne of God is surrounded by creatures that are more terrifying than a lightning bolt. That is just but a mere metaphorical, it's a lesser to the greater. These things, these creatures are fierce, translucent in their glory, endowed with unspeakable power and speed of revolution. Because in Ezekiel's vision, they are spinning nonstop, flying like wheels on a chariot. We don't understand these beings. They are human-like with all anthropomorphic features. They are flame-like with animistic beauty. They are animal-like with winged bodies. They are priestly-like with temple duties. They are servant-like with a retinue office, meaning an office uh, appointed to uh, as an entourage of God. And they are prophet-like with the oracles of praise that proceed from their mouth. They are angelic. And yet, they are not to be confused with either angels or cherubim. They are distinct. They have a very peculiar and distinct ministry and role around the throne of God. They further accent God's power by their power. Where's their power? Look at the text. When they speak, verse 4, the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out. That's in reference to the seraphim. And if the seraphim call out and the temple shakes, what will happen when God raises his voice? Hebrews tells us, everything that can be shaken will be shaken. Finally, in terms of God's 
sovereignty. So they accent his holiness. They accent his power. But they also accent his sovereignty. Why? The seraphim, with all of their heavenly hosts, whether angels or cherubim or the living creatures or the seraphim, they are ordered as they are to the divine throne room of heaven. These seraphim, brothers and sisters, are willless. They have no will of their own. They only do the bidding of their sovereign. How can you be an Arminian after reading something like this? These creatures do not have free will. Or we could say these creatures have had their wills eternally liberated, right? Well, that would mean that they were bound. You know what I mean. They are truly in conformity to the sovereignty of God. Nothing. It's inconceivable for these beings to even think of a God that is not sovereign. This would make the statement, therefore, in Isaiah's day that God's will is absolutely supreme, that the one who sits on the throne is the sovereign of Israel. And as the national pride of Judah had been weakened by the death of Uzziah, the angels reminded the world, the universe, the galaxy, the heavens, and the prophet Isaiah that God's will stands forever. As Isaiah will go on to say in chapter 46, remember this, be assured of this. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things long past. I am God and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times the things that have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established, and I will accomplish all of my good pleasure. He reigns enthroned but also as a revelation of what happens here is not just God's royal exaltation, but also God's eternal holiness. That, after all, is the very essence of what is being disclosed here. Look at verses 2 and 3 with me again. It says, The seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. With two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Of His glory. They praise God for His holiness because that is what they see and that is what they know of Him. Ever before them is the radiance of God's glory and His holiness which sanctifies the whole realm of heaven. His holiness is what marked the people, kept them in proper creator and creature distinction and in relation to God. And so what does Hosea say? Hosea 11 verse 9, I am God, not a man. What's the implication? I am the Holy One in your midst. That could have said, I am the only Holy One in your midst. Because all that is ever known of God by all of his creatures, is contingent on revelation. There is a sense in which even these seraphim fall short in their enjoyment and in their telling of the holiness of God. They only tell, they only proclaim as much as they know and as much as they are capable of telling and proclaiming of God. I don't think I have had a greater 
a, a more penetrating book on this exact issue than the 17th century Puritan Stephen Charnock. <laughs> you read what you get today on attributes of God. Puff. Like this little 100-page book, you know. Poof. Maybe 180 pages. Stephen Charnock has written a tome. It wouldn't sell anymore. That's why it goes in and out of print. Can you believe that? Talk about a God that nobody wants. They have, they know what they know of God by revelation. Notice the seraphim, brothers and sisters. They call out to one another, thereby reminding themselves as well that the transcendent majesty, the total moral purity of God applied to them too. It distinguished God from the seraphim even as it distinguishes God from all other creatures everywhere. Only God truly appreciates the depth, the infinite depth and height and breadth of His own holiness. Let me read to you Sharnak. And I prayed for you as I was preparing this. I thought, it's too long. This quote's too long. No one will listen. And babies are crying. And I said, okay, I'll just pray for them. So I prayed for you. In his exposition of Job chapter 4, the heavens are not pure in his sight. The angels he charges with folly. This is what Charnock says. Though God has crowned the angels with unspotted sanctity and placed them in a habitation of glory, yet as illustrious as they are, they have an unworthiness in their own nature to appear before the throne of so holy a God. Their holiness grows dim and pale in His presence. It is but a weak shadow of the divine purity whose light is so glorious that it makes them cover their face out of weakness to behold Him, to cover their feet out of shame in themselves. They are not pure in His sight, because though they love God, which is a principle of holiness, as much as they can, yet not as much as He deserves. They love Him with an intense degree according to their power, but not with an intense degree according to His own amiableness, what He is worthy of. For they cannot infinitely love God unless they were as infinite as God and had an infinite understanding of His perfections equal with Himself. As an immense, and as immense as His own knowledge, God, listen now, having an infinite knowledge of Himself can only have an infinite love to Himself and consequently in infinite holiness with no defects because He loves Himself. Oh man, if you're self-centered, seeker-sensitive, I don't know what you're doing right now. God loving Himself infinitely, and if you're a Calvinist, you're saying, yes, Lord. That's why I'm a Calvinist. It's a worldview shift. 
I remember getting mad at John Piper for statements like this. Now I love it. God loving himself. He loves himself according to the vastness of his own amiableness with which no finite being can. Therefore, although the angels are exempt from corruption and soil, they cannot enter into a comparison with the purity of God without acknowledging a dimness in themselves. Besides, he charges them with folly and puts no trust in them because they have the power of sinning. At least they did. Though not the act of sinning, they, they have a possible folly in their own nature to be charged with. Wow, think about that. Especially as you think about the fall of Satan. The mutability of their will. Holiness is a quality separable, separable from them, but inseparable from God. Finally, brothers and sisters, this text gives us a vision of God in His temple. Isaiah's vision situates the whole scene of the enthroned king of heaven, the entire vision in the context of a temple. Now, the word temple, bait, it just simply means house, whether it's bait Elohim, bait Adonai, the house of God. And of course, there's some debate here as to whether what Isaiah is seeing here is the temple on earth, that is the temple in Jerusalem, the Solomonic temple, or is he seeing the archetypal temple, the temple in the realm of glory, the temple in heaven? That's kind of more where I lean. The temple that is spoken of in Isaiah 66, verse 1, where heaven is his throne, the earth is his footstool. And the heavenly temple that is mentioned in Psalm, 4, Psalm 11, Psalm 18, Micah chapter 1, while the earthly temple had images of angels and cherubim, the stitching, the tapestry of those heavenly beings woven into the architecture of the temple, what Isaiah sees here is not architecture. He sees living, singing, moving beings that attend the Lord in His heavenly throne. Isaiah could also be using the earthly temple as a point to emphasize that what is in heaven should be on earth, or to quote Jesus, on earth as it is in heaven. That what the heavenly reality gives us is what the earthly should conform to. Exactly what the people were missing. And likewise, the seraphim, their cleansing act, taking the burning coal from the altar to purify the prophet, also probably speaking about the altar there in heaven before the throne of God in the heavenly realm. Also, when you think about the other comparisons of the temple in the Old Testament, Ezekiel's end-time temple visions, it's strange, but that in Ezekiel chapter 40, all the way to chapter 48, as that end-time consummate Revelation 21 temple is being constructed before Ezekiel's eyes. The furniture of the temple is all but omitted. The only thing that's central really is the throne. The throne. And so, I think what Isaiah saw, what Ezekiel saw, is the same. They saw God enthroned in the upper register in the heavenly temple as He really is engulfed 
with unspeakable celestial glory, reminding the world that God is king and that God is judge. Now let's turn that around on ourselves. God is king, but because he's on the throne, he is also the judge. And so this vision is simultaneously a comfort and a crisis for man. We are comforted because he reigns, he rules, he's sovereign, he's in control, he has ordained my steps, he orders my trials, he knows he's the beginning, he's the end, the alpha, the omega, and we sing songs about it, and we should. But we're also reminded as Daniel, who also sees the king on his throne, that as Daniel says in Daniel 7, he will judge the nations. And so Israel is to awaken simultaneously to the fact that he who rules from his throne, his dominion extends to all the earth, for the whole earth is full of his glory. God's rule, therefore, is a crisis, as we will see, of catharsis, meaning cleansing. Brothers and sisters, this chapter is relaying to us not the experience of some guy on an acid trip. Isaiah is relaying to us not the experience of some degenerate sinner at the end of a bar somewhere or a prostitute in some back alley or some corrupt politician in the halls of Washington, he is relaying to us the experience of a holy prophet of God. And if the holy prophet of God says, woe is me, what does that mean for you? What does that mean for me? If the holy prophet of God is saying, I am ruined, Couple that together with what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17, i.e., that judgment begins in the house of the Lord. And you will get a little bit of the sense of what it means to fear God, even as a Christian. Oh, bothers me when I hear Christians say, well, we don't really fear God. What? They have not experienced Isaiah 6. <laughs> I mean, just the seraphim, so terrible. These creatures were so terrible in their beauty that in the Bible, people fall down like dead before them. What's wrong with them? Are they monsters? No, we are. They're too good. They're too pure. They're too holy. And so we recoil in our monstrous sin, in fear of something so holy. And as Sharnock says, but they are but a flicker, a shadowy reflection of the holy king of heaven. Isn't it remarkable? When it says, verse 4, look at that. The temple was filling with smoke. Isn't it remarkable that as the glory of God filled the temple, the smoke surrounded the prophet, as it were, blinding him to everything around him, and yet he became awakened to his sin. When he can see nothing else, he saw his sin. And I sat there going, how am I going to make this practical? 
I, I thought to myself, how am I going to keep myself from weeping? I don't like to cry in the pulpit. You know, I'm a cold-hearted Calvinist. I don't cry in the pulpit. <laughs> but I just think we're the same nature as Isaiah. Hey, man, this is you. This is me. We're in the temple overcome by our sin, and we're looking around going, what am I going to do? I got no answers for this. There's one last thing, and this is, if you want to get practical, in disclosing his glory in the context of a temple, God not only reveals his cultic nature, cultic meaning terms of temple ritual, the glory of God found in the context here of religious devotion, liturgical worship, sacred communion, the temple theme also implicated the people. That those who reside in heaven with God do so in the context of a royal priesthood. If you're going to be in God's house, you need to be a priest. And this is like God bringing the mind way back in the recesses of the memory of the nation, what his calling was for them. I told you this before. There's several texts here. Exodus chapter 19, verse 6. You remember? We move as we go through the, the history of redemption. We move through redemptive history from the indicative of what, excuse me, the imperative of what should be to the indicative of what is. And what should be is Exodus 19, verse 6. You shall be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Don't care if you prosper. Don't care if you're safe militarily. Don't care if you're materialistically well off. You're going to be a holy nation. I don't care if you got to go from a house to an apartment. <gasps> Let it not be, right? May it never be in Frisco, Texas that you go from a house to an apartment. But what if you lose your job for your faith because you refuse to go to LGBTQ training classes in order to be a teacher? And it starts affecting the bottom line. Remember, brothers and sisters, when that comes, as many are predicting, the Christian church slowly being cornered into a Christian ghetto, as it were. Remember, if and when that comes, remember that what God cares most of all is not your square footage. What God cares most of all is your holiness. Don't care what you drive, where you live, what you sleep on, what you watch. Meaning what technology you use. Don't care if you have the latest, the greatest. Oh, technology. I was so mad at it today. I was sitting at Starbucks. I looked around and everybody. They've just made zombies out of us. You know, you guys know how you got to allow me to overspeak. It's just because, brothers and sisters, we are, it's so subtle how we can, just like Israel. How did Israel get there? How does Israel, who has the covenant God in their midst, the temple, the, the ark of the covenant, the law, 
The manuscripts, the, the, the prophets, the law, they, they have everything. The patriarchs, the covenants, the fathers, they've got the promises. They've got everything. How do they get there where they just slip? And the next thing you know, oh, by the end of the book of Isaiah, man, they're worshiping a stump. How do they get there? I'll tell you how you get there. One compromise at a time. Little by little, as James tells us in the progression of sin, a little bit of your lusts giving in and taking hold and taking the bait. The next thing you know, you're hooked and you're gone and you're dead. What goes from an imperative, you shall be a kingdom of priests to me, a holy nation. Brothers and sisters, in Christ Jesus, we transition into the indicia, the indicative, the reality. Now you are a priesthood a holy nation. And so what's left for us in the indicative realities of union with Christ is exactly what Paul gives us in Ephesians chapter 3 to 6 and Colossians chapter 3 and 4 is that we move from the indicative now back to the imperative. Now that the reality is set in stone, now we walk in newness of life. Now we put on the new man. Now we walk in the light of the Lord to use the language of Isaiah. Come, brethren, let us walk in the light of the Lord. As we see God high and lifted up, may we walk in the light of the Lord. This was such an incentive to get right with God. This was a jolt, an awakening. And the prophet, it began with him. And the people, if they were to hear what Isaiah said, they would be awoken. They would be shaken to their core to walk in his ways, to keep his laws, to trust in his servant, the Messiah, the branch, who in the subsequent chapters of the book himself will be on the throne. too much. Let's pray. <sighs> Father, I thank you so much for your word and your will today. And we confess, Lord, how, Lord, without the work, the finished work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we would be undone. You make it so much more complicated than that. But the reality is, is that without him, we have no remedy for Isaiah's cry. And yet, Lord, we are reminded that because of Jesus, oh, not because of anything that we have done, will do, or can do, but because of the merits of Christ, we are a royal priesthood, a holy nation to our God. And we will dwell with Him in heaven in the context of of a communion bond in his temple as he tabernacles around us and becomes the glory in our midst. It's so easy to lose sight of that heavenly reality. And we pray, Lord, protect our minds. Let us be like the righteous man, Psalm 15. Speak truth to our hearts. Help us not to forget this truth, but help us to speak the truth in our hearts to ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen.